I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality or favoritism. So with that is the mandate, he kind of gives you a bit of advice, verse 22. Do not be hasting in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, and keep yourself pure. Now here's a bizarre verse, because it's even in parentheses, and then he, it seems like Paul is going to talk intimately to Timothy, and he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Then he kind of brings this whole thing into the station in verse 24 and 25. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous. In other words, they're obvious. They're out there. He says, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, for you to understand why these are important, if you have your Bible, go back two chapters to chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and in verses 14 and 16, Paul really sums up his letter right in the middle of it. He gives you the entire theme of it, and he says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you. And those these things are not just what he's written, but everything in this letter. So everything we've just read, he says, Timothy, here's what I'm writing these things to you. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And this is what this household of God is. Is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth? And then he says, great indeed. In other words, this is not only true, but it's great if we confess, if what we confess is the mystery of godliness, and here's what that is, he being Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Can I get a witness? Amen. All right, there we go. All right. Now, we've been on a journey as a church family to figure this out, and I agree, I have been moving at a snail's pace. But I want us to figure this out, not just theoretically. Too many people, I believe in churches today, get into the Word of God and they get all around the theology and they miss the important application of the theology and move to it practically speaking. If you're going to have this theological position, what does that look like in real life? And so the motto of the book has been, right theology leads to right living and always results in right relationships. And folks, I will tell you, the older I get, the deeper into God's word I get, the more I know Jesus, the more I believe this to be true. Now, I am not saying that everything will always go your way. I am saying that even when relationships turn upside down, you will still know how to pursue them, how to categorize them, how to go to God with them. If you have your theology right, it means you will live right. If you live right, you will have the right view, the right motive, the right approach to relationships. And I would tell you, give me any church... Show me something. In fact, I got the most amazing set of statistics over the last little while. I'm going to deal with them. But being in the United States the last couple of weeks, I was able to go through all of Texas. I found out some things. First of all, the state of Texas has 5,000 Southern Baptist churches just in the state of Texas. There are more Southern Baptist churches in Texas than there are churches in Canada. All of them together. 
And that was an amazing thing for me. But not a single pastor did I meet, regardless of the size of his church, where he did not tell me two things. Every pastor, I don't know if Brother Daniel mentioned this, this I found funny. The one was they all had a disdain and a dislike for Joel Osteen. I'm just telling you the truth. They are just the facts. Every single pastor I met had a problem. In fact, I was teased. I was asked if I was going to go down there, all that type of stuff. And yet the other consistent thing that they had, and I think that maybe the two are connected, was the number one issue they have in their churches is consumerism. Consumption. What's in it for me? I like it if it's going to pay off for me. The idea of self-sacrifice just isn't there. And it was interesting because the latest statistics of the Southern Baptist Convention, it's the biggest Protestant denomination of the United States, has 15,500,000 members as of 2015, and yet had an average weekly attendance of 5.6 million. So only a third of their membership ever attended Sunday school, a Sunday service from week to week to week. And they saw record numbers of churches close. And to give you an idea of where I come from this, again, I want you to understand that right theology leads to right living and always results in right relationships. And how do we do that? Then, folks, listen, it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. So let me say this. We need to read the Bible again. We need to get back to reading the Bible again. We live in an age when it's accessible in every way imaginable, and we're not reading it. Too many people today who claim to know Jesus, who claim to be religious, who claim to be in church, and you ask them about how much time they spend reading the Bible, and it is unbelievably, tragically little. Dare I say, we need to pray to God again. We need to start praying as individuals, as couples, as families, as a church. And then you share the results of that Bible reading and prayer with other people. It's not a gimmick. It's not an evangelistic program. It's not of these, you just get into God's word, you deal with God in prayer, and I promise you, wild, amazing things will happen, and then you just spontaneously burst forth telling other people what God has shown you of himself. Never fails. Never fails. Now, I've been burdened about how I should act as a pastor elder. I really have. And I've been burdened with how should a church act. I'm now old enough, officially I'm middle-aged. And I'm officially figuring out that I don't know what that means. Okay? Because I was talking to uh, a friend of mine from Faith Bible Chapel, Robin and Jonathan, last night. And Robin and John and I grew up together. And the subject matter, if I dare say this, of, of me and several other couples, turned to our wives. And the question John asked his wife was if she was entering menopause. Okay, and as I sat there at almost 45, I I looked at John and I said, John, how old are we that this is a topic of discussion? When I knew you, we wondered about going to Barring Park and riding our bikes and and where we would go in the city. And now we're having discussions about menopause. That's just weird. All right. But now that I am middle-aged and I've seen a lot of things in church, I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly of church, and I find myself saying, Lord, what does a pure church, what does a good church look like? And I would submit that 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus lays out the best overall blueprint for answering these two questions. 
What does a good pastor elder look like? What does a good church look like? And just as the passage that we read in 1 Timothy 3, as well as 5, says, we've in our studies thus far, if you've been with us, we've learned about the dangers of bad leadership, bad theology, bad behavior, bad relationships. But we've also been told and taught how to identify godly men in 1 Timothy 3, how to recognize godly women in not only 1 Timothy 2, but also in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 to 16. We've been told how we are to relate to each other, how to pray, how to relate to each other, how Timothy ought to carry out his ministry, how churches should care for each other. And in this passage, we learn how we're to treat godly leaders. So here's the big idea. Let me put all of my thoughts in a sentence. How a church treats their leaders and how a church treats each other when done in response to Christ displays God's glory and the power of the gospel. How a church treats their leaders But even more than that, how a church treats each other when it's done in response to Christ, when it's not done by by someone being dictatorial, when it's not done in any way by the different uh, people you saw in the video, when it's done in response to Christ, displays God's glory and the power of the gospel. Now, here is the awkwardness for me, because let me tell you about the state of pastors and elders today. At Nine Marks, their website, Thibidian Yabwali, a pastor who's been in the Cayman Islands, he was at Capitol Hill Baptist, he's now planting a church again in the Washington area. He wrote an article uh, not too long ago saying, don't let your pastor be one of these statistics. Here are, according to the Schaefer Institute, the latest statistics about pastors in churches today. Hours and pay. 90% of pastors report working between 55 to 75 hours per week. I spoke with an intern who is supposed to work 25 hours a week, gets paid under $20,000 a year, and told me that he averages 50 to 55 hours a week. Or he won't maintain his internship. 50% of pastors feel unable to meet the demands of their calling. 70% of pastors feel grossly underpaid. In regards to training and preparedness, 90% of those, uh, those uh, surveyed feel they are inadequately trained to cope with the ministry demands that they are faced with. 90% of pastors said the ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be like before they entered the ministry. In regards to health and well-being, 70% of faster pastors, 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. of pastors feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way to make it and supply for their family. In regards to marriage and family, 80% believe pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. 80% of spouses feel the pastor is overworked. 80% spouses feel left out and underappreciated by church members. Church relationships, 70% do not have someone they consider a close friend. 40% report serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. The number one reason pastors leave ministry. Church people are not willing to go in the same direction and goal of the pastors. Pastors believe God wants them to go in one direction, but the people are not willing to follow or change. Listen to this for longevity. 50% of the ministers starting out today will not last five years. One out of every 10 ministers will actually retire as a minister in some form. Now think about that. 
only one in 10 will begin as a pastor and finish as one. Only one in 10. 4,000 church, new churches begin each year and 7,000 churches close. 1,300 pastors were terminated by the local church each month in 2015. Over 3,500 people a day left the church last year in the United States. And that's just only one survey. Only one. Now, I want to give you the other side of this as well. Because I got to tell you, that is not true of all pastors. In fact, I have to tell you completely honestly, as I stand before you, many of the statistics in that are not true of me. They're not true of many of the pastor friends that I know. There are many that do fit these categories. But for me, I love being a pastor. I really do. I love to get up. In fact, people ask me all the time, and I will tell you, on its worst day, I have never gotten up yet in my life at 44 and ever said, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. I really haven't. On its worst day, I still couldn't wait to get to my office. I still couldn't wait to do. Do I get discouraged? Yes. Have I struggled with depression? Yes. Have I struggled with people? Yes. Have I struggled with myself? Yes. Have we had struggles in our marriage and in our family? Yes. But I have never once regretted God's call to ministry. And I've been blessed beyond measure. You know why? Because as a pastor, I get to spend every day on what matters most. I really do. I get up and I get to go and work at eternal issues. And I get to do that every day. I get to do just about everything. My day is never the same. I love that. You know what? I get to see as a pastor, yes, do I see often, do I see people at their worst? Yes, but I also get to see people at their best. I have been blessed to see some of the most amazing stories. Some of them I've met here in this church just in the last 16 months. But some of the greatest testimonies and stories I have are in this church. You know what else I love? I get paid to think, write, and speak about God's word. This church allows me to spend every day just marinating in God's word. That is awesome for me. And so I can't thank you for enough. I, as a pastor, as a full-time vocational pastor, I get to help people. As a full-time pastor, I have freedom to organize my schedule and adjust it so I can have those impromptu hospital visits and I can talk to people who call me and say, can we have lunch or the pop-in or whatever, whatever. And you know what? As a pastor, and you heard it read, and folks, you need to understand the sovereignty of God that we would be reading through the book of Hebrews, that Brother John would read Hebrews chapter 13 on this Sunday when I would be at this passage and none of that was planned. That's a work of God. And that's why I'm so excited because you know what the greatest reason to be a pastor is? I answer to a higher authority. I answer to a higher authority. Ultimately, no matter what men and women or people will do to me, and ultimately, no matter how mad I fail or succeed, ultimately, my God is my authority. And that is amazingly comforting. Now, do I have days when I am incredibly blinded and short-sighted? Without a doubt. But I am so thankful for God's church. I'm so thankful for other pastors. But I want you to know both sides of the coin. Now, the idea that how a church treats its leaders, the idea that how a church treats each other when it's done in response to Christ displays God's glory and the power of the gospel, doesn't that just make sense? I mean, think about it. Doesn't that just make sense? Timothy, here in our letter, is sent to confront bad leadership. That's chapter 1, all right? He is asked to lead the church in identifying and putting in place good leadership. That's chapter 3. 
And what's, that's all of chapters 1, 2, and 3 that are all about. Chapter 4 starts by telling us what results from bad leadership or bad teaching. When you have bad leaders, just read the first part of First Timothy chapter 4, and you will see what the results are. They, they forbid to marry. They start de- dealing with what's called this $50 theological term called asceticism, which is self-denial, as if somehow you're earning brownie points with God, and you start to lead men and women astray and stuff like that. And in fact, I saw a great little meme on Facebook, and it was uh, one of these prosperity pastors, and it, said from, it was from the States. It said, guns don't kill people. Bad theology kills people. And that's true. Because what does it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? It doesn't matter if you can find the how-to and the helps to have the greatest marriage and the greatest family and the greatest job and the greatest bank account and the greatest retirement plan and the greatest house and all the great possessions if you don't know Jesus. In fact, I have known people that have none of that. It's been taken from them or they've lost it or anything, but they know Jesus and they have a peace and a purpose and a commitment and they have a a sense of suffering well and all these things that baffles the mind. And I have met some of the most blessed people who should know better, who have the world by the tail. They live, as I've called it, the Skittles life. And they are some of the most miserable, unhappy, complaining people you've ever met in your life. It's because they don't know the power of the gospel. Now in chapter 5, we learn how good leadership leads the church to practice real religion. Remember, in regards to widows and orphans and all these types of things, we learn how we love for each other and we care for each other. We're united in our love for each other. Why and how? Jesus Christ, that's our motive. We have him for our example. We have him as our guide. We have him as our strength. And ultimately, we have Jesus as our advocate. Now, I think then it makes sense that Paul would tell Timothy to teach the church once you've gotten the right type of leadership in place, there's a right God-honoring way to treat them. So let's be honest, in our not even 24-hour news cycle, we now live in a world that's probably what, a 12 or two-hour news cycle? You can now, I mean, just this last week, that poor lady that put the Chewbacca, uh, Chewbacca mask on and, and that thing goes viral and it's 100 million views and now Star Wars executives are showing up at her house and giving her free Star Wars stuff. I mean, it's just a crazy world we live in. All because a lady wanted to have a shopping day and put a Chewbacca, Chewbacca mask on and said, this is for me and not my kids. That's the crazy world we live in, Okay. And in the world you and I live in, we hear about the failings of pastors all the time. We just do. We hear about the scandals, and we hear about the shame, and we hear about the splits. But let's be honest and say that's a two-way street. It's easier to hear about the pastors. It's easy to hear about all that stuff. But often we don't hear about, yet it's a two-way street to hear about the churches that turn on pastors and the churches that forsake the truth and the churches that are very abusive to their pastors, whether it's because they've had a bad pastor in the past and by, by jumpings, they're not going to be burned again, okay? But let me just give you all of those. If you just think about the statistics I've given you, and truly I have felt and experienced and walked through some of these. I know what it is to get up in the morning and go and say, I wonder who's going to have a bullseye on my back today. I really have. I know what it is to be served lawsuit papers where I was sued because someone had to be disciplined out of the church. And then when the person went through all the legalities of trying to sue me personally and that lawsuit failed, sent me a letter telling me that if I was a godly man, I would pay his legal fees. 
I've experienced that. I have those letters in my office. I have letters and cards in my office where people have written me to tell me how God has used me to do major things in their lives, and the same person within six months has written me a letter to say, literally, I quote, you are the spawn of Satan. I have lived those things. But I can tell you as well, church, I have been loved and cared for and just adored on and adored over by God's people in so many beautiful ways. I also have files and files of letters and notes from God's people who have supported me and prayed for me and come alongside me and let me lead them and have prayed for my family and been a major influence on our children. And, And there was a list so long of thank yous that Debbie and I owe to so many people. We would never, if we began today and started writing, we'd never get to the end of them because God has been so good to us. But the other side of this is that many pastors I know, which includes me, loves being a pastor and has been so blessed by the churches I have been a part of. But this passage, let's honestly look at it today and listen to what God has to say. So number one, I want you to notice how the church cares for their elders. Okay, I want you to look at that. How does the church care for their elders? David Platt writes this, how the church cares for their elders, both financially and otherwise, communicates something about its heart. So David Platt says, how the church cares for their elders, both financially and otherwise, communicates something about their heart. But just like the first part of chapter 5, where relationships should look different in the church, so the relationship between leadership and the church should look different as well. So let me sum it up. The gospel should be on full display at church, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? All right, come on. It's a long weekend. You guys get to sleep in tomorrow, shouldn't it? Absolutely, okay, absolutely. I don't have to tell you how the workplace isn't like this. Isn't like this, all right? Think about it. While some of you might say to me, you know what, I've got a pretty pleasant place to work in my life, Pastor Steve. There are reasons we have certain cliches. Little cliches like water cooler gossip or dog eat, it's a dog eat dog world or the boss from you know where, okay? It's not what you know or not what you, yeah, not what you know, but who you know. This is actually normal in the world, but it should be abnormal in the church. It shouldn't be not who you know in the church. It should be, well, should be who you know in the church being Jesus Christ, not a pastor or an elder or your favorite deacon or whatever board runs the church. I remember when I was in Bible college, my, my first stint at Bible college, I was in a quartet and uh, we were traveling and I went to this church and it was an all black church. And there was four white dudes that sh- showed up and, and we went in and this, bless her heart, this lady uh, met us at the church and, and she, was a, she was a blessed lady and, um, in girth, and um, she, she met us at the church, and, and, and she said to us, hello, boys, and she said, I'm the mama of this church. That's how she uh, introduced herself to us, and she took us right in, and she just made us her kids, and we were like four little white adopted kids in this church, and we had a wonderful time, but I laughed when I thought, I'm the mama of this here church. There's way too many people that say that, and they, they mean it. They think the church is theirs, and so that's not what it's supposed to look like in the church amazingly, Paul says that some elders here are to be considered worthy of double honor. John MacArthur helps us understand that expression. He says, it's honored, deserved, not simply given. So don't think that Paul is saying, listen, Timothy, there are some guys, they've earned this honor. No, no, no. 
this is something they deserve. It's not that they've earned it. No, God says they deserve it. They deserve it. So it's not supposed to be, well, I'll look around on the, the guy that impresses me. I'll give him double honor. But the guy that doesn't impress me, I won't. That's not the expression here. And so there's two ways that you give this double honor, okay? One of them is, and the elephant in the room, remuneration. One of them is remuneration, how you pay or financially subsidize your pastors. Paul quotes from both the Old Testament and the New Testament in this passage. Look at it again with me. Notice what he says. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Notice what he says, verse 18. For the scripture says. Paul doesn't say, here's my opinion, or here's what I'd like you to think. He says, here's what the Bible says. And what he quotes there is two two things. He quotes Deuteronomy 25.4. Deuteronomy 25.4, so he quotes Moses, who basically says, if an animal works hard and helps others to be fed, then that animal deserves to be fed. Now, if Paul and the Bible would say an animal deserves this, how much more should a fellow believer called by God to serve the church deserve to be compensated like this? This is what we have to play through. The second quote is really cool, and I want to give you a little commercial here. Paul actually quotes, notice what he says. The, he says here, In our passage, he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And now notice it's in quotations. The laborer deserves his wages. That's Paul quoting Luke chapter 10, verse 7. It's word for word, a quote from Luke 10, 7. And Luke there is quoting Jesus word for word. Now that's important. Because not only does it make Paul's point here from both the Old and New Testament, but it shows us that Paul is using the New Testament. He's using a letter from Luke who was quoting Jesus and saying, this is authoritative. So I want you to understand when you're wondering about your Bible, that even during the first century, that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, that these letters are being written and they recognize them as from God. So commercial, you can trust your New Testament. You should trust your New Testament. Paul is quoting both the Old Testament, and then he quotes Luke, quoting Jesus as the Word of God, for the Scripture says. And so he uses both old and new, but notice what he says. He says, the laborer, notice, deserves his wages. And, And I just want you to understand this. Perhaps the greatest passage that sums this up is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 12. Paul writes this, who serves as a a soldier at his own expense? There's the question. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Nobody in our Canadian Armed Forces does that. Nobody in the United States Army does that. When you go into the forces, the the, the government says, if you're going to be a soldier for us, we'll take care of you. He says, or who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do, we, do not we even more? 
Now, the amazing thing about the Apostle Paul is he himself never burdens a church like this, but I love the fact that he's looking out for these pastors and he's saying, church, make sure this double honor, one side of it is you pay them well. You, they deserve it. You recognize this. Now, the obvious question is, well, what's a fair wage for a pastor? <laughs> now, I didn't, I'm not going to lie. I'm a human being. And I thought, okay, what am I going to say when I get to this level? What's fair? Because no matter what I say can seem a little bit like I'm putting forth my own agenda. Okay, so let me say before I even start that this church cares for me in a way that I am often, to use a Newfoundland expression mixed with Irish, gobsmacked. All right? This is not an indictment on this church or even these veiled suggestions. This church has been overwhelmingly kind and generous to me. But I want us to remember that for the future. Okay? The fair, what is a fair wage for a pastor to get? Well, let me put it this way. I think pastors should represent the church they pastor. I really believe that's what Paul's talking about. So based on the age, the education, the experience, the responsibility, a pastor should be able to live like the church he leads. And I would go so far as this. When in doubt, go above and beyond because God will never ever hurt you because you go above and beyond. And that's why even for me, when people call us from the city, and I dealt with this when I was at my last ministry. We, we get a lot of people that will call us and ask us for money for food or different than that. And I had a secretary at my last ministry. She'd keep a little log like we, were the, like we were the CIA of all those that will call us. And I'm not lying. A lot of people do try to take advantage of church. They call up and they call from church to church to church and they look for a handout from every church and so on and so forth. But I, I found that once the word got out that we were a bit generous, that I could spend my entire day just trying to be the Gestapo and figure out if someone who called me deserved to get help. And then God laid it on my heart through the reading of his word that, you know what? God's a much better taker carer of things than I am. And so we're just called to be generous and kind. And if someone's stealing from or taking advantage of the church, you don't think God is not way better equipped to handle that than I am? And I just found that I started letting people know that. We would help people all the time. And, they, and then it would come back and they'd call me again or they'd call me again. And one time I remember I, helped, I gave this couple uh, bus tickets and brought them to the bus station. Then I went down to the bookstore and I'm driving up University Avenue in Charlotte. And here comes this couple with bags of groceries and McDonald's and everything. They had turned in their, t- their bus tickets and just went to town. They had a field day. And so I really went through a moment of rage. And then I thought, wait a second, is God not a better judge of this than you are? So I pulled over, rolled the window down and said, hey guys, how you doing? <laughs> Well, the two of them looked like they'd been shot. And then I said, do you guys need a ride anywhere? You look like you got a lot of stuff. <laughs> and uh, they were very sheepish and, and stuff like that and started to tell me how things had changed and stuff like that. And I just said, you know what, guys? I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying for you and drove away. You don't think God's not a better able to take care of that than I am? We have to trust that when this. So what's the pastor doing in your church? Are there exceptions? You know, listen, I understand that when you say, well, the pastor should live like, that you're saying that the pastor should live like the church he pastors. I understand sometimes churches are too small to afford a pastor's salary. There will be exceptions. That's why we have church planting. That's why other churches that are bigger can help smaller churches. In fact, I think Calvary's experienced that. This is one of the things we're looking at when we look at planting churches in this city. There's no way you're going to launch a church and have a church of 10, 15, 20, 30 people be able to afford a full-time pastor salary in this city. So we're going to need other churches to band together, and we're going to walk by faith, and that's a requirement of both church and pastor. But we should never use it as a cop-out to say, listen, 
listen, buddy, you serve Jesus, so you get along well. We're all going to live high in the hog, and we'll send you postcards on our five-star vacations while you wonder how you're going to feed the kids next week. That's not the gospel. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. The second part of double honor does not mean double pay, by the way. It doesn't mean that pastors deserve double the pay. And I've seen that. I've seen that. And because others abuse it doesn't mean we have now a right to redefine it. What does double honor mean? It means remuneration, but it also means respect. It also means respect. And I have to tell you, of most of the pastors I know, respect is far more valuable to them than pay is. Because they've seen God work. You'll notice that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and listen to these words, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. What's the result of that? Be at peace among yourselves. Paul tells us, that pastors who do their job, who answer their calling to preach and teach, are worthy of respect. And that is, you listen to them when they preach and teach God's word. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, that there will come a time when folks will stop listening because they're going to have itching ears. And they'll heap to themselves teachers. In other words, what it means is they will stop listening to pastors who truly preach and teach and they will look for those who will tell them what they want to hear. They'll tell them what makes them feel good. And you live in this age. You live in this age with all of the moral issues in Canada and the United States. Look at denominations and you will find... In fact, I remember when I was in my master's seminary class on pastoral theology, the pastor said the most amazing thing. He was from the United States. He said, name me your sin and I'll find you a church that says it's okay in the United States. Name me the sin that you want to feed and you'll find a group of people and a guy leading it to tell you that's okay. And so Paul warns that But he says, we are called as churches, we are even commanded to obey and to listen and to follow the examples of our pastors who preach and teach the word of God. Now, that does not mean and it does not make pastors perfect. You all know, having spent 16 months with me, that that's not true. I can't get through a sermon and say all my words right. And I have two lovely children that take great joy in letting me know what words I screwed up. And if you want stories of it, see me privately because I can't tell you publicly, all right? But this is not to say that pastors are perfect. Oh, and that doesn't make them perfect if... It's not that it makes them perfect. It's are they an example of following Christ who is perfect? And then you follow them. In other words, remember what I prayed? That you would be Berean. This is what Paul talks about to the Thessalonians, that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Why? Because when Paul preached them, the apostle Paul, they still went home and they studied the scriptures to see if these things were so. And so I cannot tell you in a moment of transparency, the most discouraging thing for me as a pastor is when, as a pastor, I point people to Jesus and his word and folks nod their heads at me and smile, thank me and have prayer with me, and then go out and do exactly the opposite of what they've been told. That is so discouraging. Or when I tell them, when I don't tell them what they want to hear, and then they go ask a friend for their opinion. 
That's like, think about what that's like. I, I know we have the, the Max with us, and our brother's a doctor in emergency, and, and he must face this too, but it amazes me because if I go to the emergency, and the emergency doctor comes and sees me, and I tell him what the problem is, and then he tells me what the diagnosis is, I don't look up at him and say, listen, I'm just going to call mom and see if she agrees with you. Because, you know, mom's seen me naked. You know the commercials that, that got famous about Holiday Inn when these guys come out and they start giving you all this expert advice about everything and they say, well, are you a doctor? He goes, no, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. You, you remember that? A lot of people, you would not believe how many people in church do this to their pastors. They go to their pastors and they ask them for godly counsel and then the pastor gives them and then they, they don't like what they hear. So then they call someone that's not at all a part of, 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 of the pastorate and go, I wonder what they think. That is very discouraging. I want you to know that. Now, you might say, who is worthy, or what does this worthy even mean? Notice Paul tells us, and I'm going to wrap up with this, those who rule well and those who labor in preaching and teaching. Notice, it's not just those who rule. It's those who rule well. That's, that's the condition. They rule well. In other words, they, they do for uh, Hebrews 13. Obey those leaders that are above you and follow them as those who must give an account and they act like it. Spurgeon, again, who's my favorite pastor of, of history, Spurgeon said that if a pastor dwelt on Hebrews 13 long enough, he'd go insane. Because the writer is saying that a pastor is responsible for the spiritual well-being of those that God has put under his care and that one day I will stand before the living God and answer to a thrice holy God about how I have shepherded this flock. That's a huge weight of responsibility. And so the question is, am I ruling well? Okay, the balance of that, you'll see it later uh, when I preach again from 1 Peter 5. And then those who labor in preaching and teaching. Pastors are to be loved and paid according to that love. They are to be respected and listened to according to the respect uh, that Jesus Christ commands. And folks, listen, we're losing the battle in this. We're losing the battle in this. Well, I would think that a lot of pastors are paid well. Many aren't. But I will tell you, a lot of pastors are not respected. And I know because of time, I can't get to it. But I will tell you this, that might shock you the second rate of divorce of all professions in Canada and the United States is among clergy. It has the second highest rate of divorce of all professions. I want you to hold on to these statistics. As I said to you, 15.5 million members in the SBC of the United States with only 5.6 million. Serving is down. Giving is down. Witnessing is down. And so, I want to ask you, church, by way of conclusion and application for today, is how do you personally view your elders? All of them. Not just me, but Jeff and Daniel and Steve and Paul. Yes, I'm the only vocational elder. I'm the one here that the church pays full-time vocationally to be here, but all of us are elders. We're all tasked, called of God, confirmed by you, the church. How do you view us collectively and how do you view us individually? And how do you personally support your elders? Do you pray for them, encourage them, love them, come alongside them, respect them, seek to understand them, trust in them as they trust in Christ, listen to them as they preach and teach Christ, even following your elders as they cast vision as long as it's based on the word of God. 
These are the applications for us. And the way we treat each other will be a testimony to a watching world. So I want to say thank you. Thank you to this church for the way you have treated me and my wife and my family. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for praying for us. But I want to continuously call you to pray for me and your elders, to care for me and your elders, to show us that double honor, not because we're power hungry, but because we serve a risen Savior. And when we do this together, we display the gospel at its best, and we glorify God. Can I say, that is amazing grace. That is amazing grace. Let's not be a statistic. Let's be something different. Let's be a gospel-focused, Christ-centered, God-glorifying church. And that will change this city. Two weeks from now, Brother Paul, uh, D- Steve is going to preach next week on Nehemiah, and you're going to find out that Nehemiah is going to play a part in this sermon when I preach to you next of men that had to deal with things because the next two things we're going to look at is how do you confront elders? In other words, what do you do when elders screw up? And how do you choose elders? And that's what we're going to look at and with a big idea at the end. And then I have to correct something that I left behind in the first half of 1 Timothy 5. So that's just a little teaser and a commercial of coming attractions. All right, let's close in prayer together. Father God, thank you for this time. Lord, this sermon was a little different. Uh, It was a struggle. But Lord, I pray that I've been true to you and your word. I pray that nobody here, that nobody here thinks I was preaching at them or to them. But that, Father, I wanted to take God's word and display it to us all. And yet, Father, fill me with courage to say if someone has felt convicted, if someone has felt like they've got a question or a struggle or someone has has been moved in some way, that, Father, that is of you. And so I pray that that person will seek me out or seek an elder out or seek prayer. And, Father, I do pray that anyone who's here who doesn't know you or someone here who's doubting you or someone here is a bit, um, maybe they're discouraged Maybe church hasn't lived up to everything they thought it should. Lord, I just want to help them see that, Father God, you are perfect and you are making your church perfect, but we're not perfect yet. Lord, I've talked about how pastors have failed and churches have failed, but I also think that's what makes us a family. When I think of my wife and I and our children that you have blessed us with, Lord, Debbie and Jordan and Abby and Brandon are four human beings that I have hurt more than any other four human beings. And yet, I know how much I love them. Lord, we have endured as a family the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We have walked through mess and junk and failure and betrayal and all the things that are in between of each other. And yet, we're family, so we stick together. We walk through the junk. We walk through the failures. We walk through the betrayals even when we betray each other and we hurt each other and we fail each other because we're family. Lord, I pray that that would be the attitude of this church. Lord, I don't want Calvary to proclaim itself as the perfect church, exactly the opposite. I want us to proclaim ourselves as a bunch of sinners who serve a perfect Savior. And we want desperately to be like our perfect Savior. 
So we trust you, Lord, and we believe in you, Lord, and we want to follow you, Lord, and we want to do the things that you tell us to do, even as it relates to pastors and elders, as it relates to widows, as it relates to men and women, as it relates to marriage. Lord, help us to hear Hebrews 13 today that says, let not the marriage bed be defiled and let marriage be honored. And Father, we live in a world that's dishonoring marriage and it's creeping into the church where purity is an option and not a calling. And yet, Father, also please stop us from being legalistic and self-righteous and narrow-minded and bigoted as if somehow we are going to legislate holiness. The only thing that's going to save the government of Newfoundland and the government of Canada and the government of the United States is not a moral minority or a moral majority. It's only going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, save people and transform us into your image because that's amazing grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.